Hello, I'm Kate Chabone. Welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, where are the threats to our cyber security coming from? The outgoing head of cyber security in the UK joins us. In the six and a half years that I ran cyber security for the UK government, Russia was the ever-present constant threat. We tracked it incessantly. More than 2,000 US troops are to leave Iraq, but is it the right time to draw down forces? The fact that we've been in Iraq and indeed in Afghanistan so long begs bigger questions about the post-operational uh, stabilization plans. And as an exhibition opens on the anniversary of the Blitz, we hear how the artist Henry Moore spent his nights sheltering in London tube stations, drawing the people taking cover with him. Barely a day goes by without news of attempted cyber attacks on individuals or institutions in this country. Criminals have used the COVID-19 pandemic to try and scam people and hostile actors have attempted to access work being done in this country on finding a vaccine. In 2016, the government set up the National Cyber Security Centre to combat cyber threats and the government announced an investment of £1.9 billion. Well, Kieran Martin has led the organisation for the last four years and has just stood down as its Chief Executive Officer. Before that, he was Director General Cyber at GCHQ. I asked him how COVID-19 had changed the nature of cyber threats in the UK. Criminals and state attackers go to where the fear is. And in COVID, criminals have sought, instead of trying to send you a fake tax refund or a driver vehicle license fine or something like that, have sent us all messages for fake personal protective equipment or um, fake cures for COVID or indeed fake messages about government support. So that's on the criminal side. And on the state side, I think one of the lessons for us as defenders, whether you're in government or in the, in the private sector, is that what we think of as critical can change. So perhaps six months ago, the focus of a lot of people in government when I was working there was on things like the energy sector. And obviously, that's still really important. But aspects of just making sure the NHS could keep going regardless of what was happening making sure that our vaccines were properly um, safeguarded, but also things you may not think of, like food distribution became really important in the early months of lockdown. So I think, you know, from the attacker's point of view, instead of perhaps looking at some of our energy secrets or even some of our defence secrets, we're looking more at our vaccines and things and, and things like that. So from the defender's point of view, we have to be flexible, agile and nimble and put our defences somewhere else. And as I understand it, you yourself were even targeted. What happened? Yeah, in the early days of lockdown, I got a very authentic looking text message from the government admonishing me for leaving my house three times in one of the early uh, weeks of uh, lockdown and um, telling me to go on to gov.uk and pay a £35 fine. There were various things that aroused my suspicion. Um, mostly it's just common sense. The government hadn't announced any such fining scheme. And also the government very rarely and made a public announcement when it sends a text message to every individual. Government will never ask you to pay money by text. And unless you hovered over the URL link, as we all know, and it's, it gave a sort of gobbledygook address, you can easily be, uh, be lured. So I think one of the things I was proudest of in my last months at the NCSC, we were able to take down lots of these sites. We were able to take down hundreds of thousands of them because they're pretty contemptible. Mm. In terms of uh, threats from the state actors, what is the hostile actor states in terms of the vaccine research? What have they been doing? They were looking, trying to break into some of the institutions that were most closely associated with world-leading vaccine research. Um, 
one can never really tell without access to the minds of the attackers why they're doing that, but one can speculate that they're looking to perhaps steal some very important research so that they can adapt it and use it. So that's one very obvious reason. I'm pleased to say that we didn't see any evidence of them successfully gaining entry um, uh, into the networks. But I think, you know, if you go back 10, 20 years, pharmaceutical research has been one of the great targets for cyber attackers because it can be um, a way to, frankly, you know, get get rich quick as well as to um, gain some strategic advantage in that, you know, the first country to develop the vaccine is going to be in a good position. And the UK has got some very good medical researchers and vaccine researchers. So we've got to make sure we do whatever we can to protect them. Yeah. In another area, your agency was key in reversing the government's course on Huawei and 5G. Do you think we're too dependent on Chinese technology in general? With everything, there are extremes. So on one extreme, you could say, we don't want anything that's touched China in any way. Another extreme, you could say, we're completely open to anybody who wants to sell anything to us. Now, the UK has never been in that latter position. We've always taken a very hard-headed approach to technology, whether it comes from China or or anything else. And the other extreme position, you know, I think we'd be getting rid of most laptops, tablets, and smartphones, and all other technology if if there was a rule that if it had touched China at all in any aspect of the hardware and software supply chain, then we wouldn't um, have have it. So it's a question of risk judgment. With Huawei, what happened was we were able to manage a certain level of risk, and then with changes in U.S. regulations, we were no longer able to do that, and that led to the change in position. The more important question, as you implied, is what does this mean? What does this sort of thing mean for the long term? And I think there is growing tension between the US and China over the tech supply chain. We've got to make sure we understand the implications of that. And I think we're going to have to look at not just how secure the networks, the hardware, the software and so on, but how secure are our suppliers, how reliable are the suppliers, how vulnerable are they to these uh, tensions, how much do we know about them. So I think we're in for an interesting period in terms of the way the technology supply chain works. And I do think that some of the government's ideas around making sure that more of this is done within the UK or nearby is quite a good thing, really. So better due diligence, really? Yeah, and better capacity of our own. We live in a highly globalised economy. The UK is a very open global economy, but we have perhaps traded a little bit too much tech away. Um, the UK is good at tech. Maybe we should be keeping a bit more of it onshore. In terms of security threats from Russia, MPs on the Intelligence and Security Committee's report, which covered cybersecurity, accused the intelligence agencies of badly underestimating the threat. What's your response to that? Well, I don't speak for the government anymore, and the government will have to issue its reply to that report and look forward to, to reading that. Speaking personally, in the six and a half years that I ran, cybersecurity for the UK government. Russia was the ever-present constant threat. It increased over the course of that period. We tracked it incessantly. We um, protected several major electoral events. We found Russia on energy systems, on telecommunication systems, and with partners in the US, Canada, Australia, and elsewhere, we outed those. So when I think of the huge amount of operational success and also operational effort against Russia over that period, I get that there will be concerns about to what extent um, did the government take the threats um, seriously enough strategically and so forth. But just from an operational point of view, I can't really recognise a picture that says we weren't taking Russia seriously because we were flat out on Russia for years. And the Ministry of Defence uh, this summer launched 13th Signal Regiment, a dedicated cyber regiment to protect defence networks at home and on operations overseas. Uh, how much did your agency work with the Ministry of Defence on these issues? First of all, I want to pay tribute to Defence and Armed Forces colleagues for the huge support they've given me and my 
Environmental Agency over the last several years. And secondly, I think we've had a strong relationship with advice, but we want defence to build up as much cybersecurity capability as it can uh, for itself. I mean, because for, for two reasons. One is it's closer to home. The best defenders are the people who know how the systems work, who interact with the people who use the systems and, and so on. And secondly, the less we have to do directly for the MOD, the more we can uh, focus on other strategic national um, efforts. So it's been a good partnership, but the bulk of the credit for that goes to the Ministry of Defence and they deserve it. How much do you think cyber security should feature in the forthcoming integrated review into foreign policy, defence and security? Well, it won't surprise you to learn that I think it should feature very heavily. But I also think how it features is really important. I think technology has become even more important in 2020 during the pandemic as a way through and a way out of this crisis. Public confidence and safe and secure technology is now really essential, I think, for a successful nation. So I hope that securing the internet, securing our technological base, our digital homeland, is one of the major features of the review. That was Kieran Martin, the former head of the National Cyber Security Centre, who is taking up a professorial post at Oxford University. Well, joining me now is Shashank Joshi, the defence editor of The Economist and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Shashank, Kieran Martin is very plain there about the scale of the threat from Russia. How does the UK compare with other countries in our cyber defence capabilities? I would say reasonably well. Um, even the existence of uh, Kieran's organisation, the National Cyber Security Centre, is interesting. It's an arm of GCHQ, Britain's Signals Intelligence Agency. Many countries don't have a dedicated defensive arm uh, staffed with uh, computer experts, signals intelligence experts in the same way. So that's, that's uh, interesting in itself. I also think it's interesting that we fare pretty well on most international indices. If you look at the Cyber Power Index from the Economist Intelligence Unit back in 2011, the UK was top above America. Uh, again, the UK was top in a global cyber security index published two years ago by the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU. And this week, the Belfer Centre at Harvard University has published its own National Cyber Power Index. That includes both offensive and defensive uh, capabilities, so not just the stuff that that Kieran Martin does, but the UK is third behind America and China. So I think by any account, um, we are generally technologically, organisationally, pretty good on defence and, and pretty high up those rankings. So a uh, pretty positive spin there. Christopher, how central will cybersecurity be in the defence review? It's very, very important and it will look very important and there'll be money in it. Cybersecurity is something which we do rather well, as Shesheng says. But the important thing is to remember it's going to, get, it's going to get trickier, it's going to get better, and other people are going to get better. And I think that's important, there's the speed at which people are changing, the speed at which they catch up now. What we're seeing is the, is the digitalization of something which we've always done, and that's finding out what other people are doing, finding out if other people and who is doing it, and what are the details and who is organising it and where it fits in, for example, with operational plans. You look at a, a NATO exercise now in continental Europe, um, you begin with cyber security. How significant do you think the forthcoming review will be? I think, it, I think it'll be very significant. Don't forget, this is a review not just of defence policy, it's a, it's a so-called integrated review of foreign defence and security policy. And I think it'll have to reckon with the fact that over the past five years, this big 
conventional problem on, on Britain's eastern eastern frontiers in, in, in the form of Russia has revived. But of course, um, we're also now vulnerable to states very far away. 20 years ago, no one would have thought that North Korea could cause severe security problems to the NHS. And of course, that's exactly what happened in the WannaCry attack several years ago. And therefore, the review has to cope, I think, with juggling, in a way, the revival of these very traditional great power challenges with completely new ones where geography doesn't play the same role. Gentlemen, stay with us. Well, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has written in the Sunday Times this week that we desperately need to reform and modernise our armed forces if we are to be able to meet emerging threats. Mr Wallace said, for too long we have had a sentimental attachment to a static, armoured-centric force structure anchored in Europe, while our competition has nimbly spread out across the globe. Well, Conservative MP Tobias Elwood is the chair of the Defence Select Committee in the Commons. I'm pleased the uh, Defence Secretary is speaking in this way. We have a fantastic, uh, fantastic armed force. They're extremely professional, but they are overstretched. The Air Force, the Army, the Navy... We ask them to do an awful lot. So I hope this integrated review will firstly recognize that, but also conduct things in a sensible chronological order. Because before you can then choose how further to advance our defense posture, you have to ask yourselves, what do you want to do in a world that is becoming increasingly more threatening and those threats are becoming more diverse, more complex? We have to ask ourselves the fundamental question as to what is Britain's role on the international stage. What are our ambitions? What is our vision? And from there, you can then craft the defence posture, the hard power that then will support uh, that agenda. And the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, also revealed he'll publish a defence industrial policy alongside the wider review this year. Is that something you would welcome? I would, indeed, because this isn't just about creating, crafting and building the necessary hard power. It's also about making sure that we can build British, that we can actually produce things in this UK. We have a, a long history of uh, creating uh, our own machinery, our own equipment, and then exporting them as well. That can only continue if you actually have a strategy to help you achieve that. It isn't just about those conventional areas of air, sea, and land, but of course, cybersecurity is so important. Uh, creating greater resilience in that effect, but also space as well. Both Russia and China are now seeing as space as integral to any uh, of their military capabilities. We should be doing the same. Now, you've expressed concern about government plans which could amend parts of the UK's Brexit deal. The Northern Ireland Secretary said a new bill will break international law, but in a specific and limited way. What are your concerns about it? Well, to make it very clear that this is nothing to do uh, with Brexit, uh, this is actually about the appearance that we might be willing to break international law. And that's exactly what we strive to be. How can we look at China in the eye and complain about their actions in Hong Kong breaching that treaty if we're willing to do the same overseas? It would set a very different precedent. And what do you say to your colleagues who would say this is a tough negotiation on all sides, including the EU, and you should support your government in getting the best deal for the country? I do support my government. I want the best deal for the country. Boy, are we all weary after you know a number of years since that referendum. But we don't play about with those hard-fought values and standards that makes Britain what it is today. Without the rule of law, Britain is nothing. Without the rule of law, who are we? How can we convince anybody? How can we even strike future trade deals with other nations? 
uh, if they think that they cannot trust us because we might breach it, as we've done with, with as we might do with the withdrawal agreement. So I hope that yes, to, as we get down to the wire and things are getting very intense indeed, as the, a lot of saber rattling always takes place. But let's get us this Brexit deal across the line uh, without challenging the hard-fought values and standards that Britain upholds and uh, actually treats very, very dearly indeed. Now, on another subject, we've learned the United States is reducing its troop presence in Iraq this month from 5,200 to 3,000. The commander of US Central Command said the reduction reflects confidence in the ability of US-trained Iraqi security forces to handle the militant threat. Is it the right decision? Uh, well, I would have to see the details on that. The fact that we've been in Iraq and indeed in Afghanistan so long begs bigger questions about the post-operational uh, stabilization plans. And you could also argue that the same points to Libya as well and other different parts of the world. We do not have a good track record of once we've defeated the enemy, of enabling the locals, the indigenous people, to be able to stand on their own feet. And that's caused uh, consequential problems uh, which also lead to issues across Europe, not least with migration and so forth, because we didn't conclude the job or do a good enough job in the first place. So I'd hesitate to agree with this movement. I'd like to ensure that we don't leave a vacuum in any part of the world which could be filled by our competitors uh, who may have a very different agenda. And the best example of that is uh, Russia, that's moved into Syria. That was Tobias Elwood, the chair of the Defence Select Committee. Shashank Joshi, Tobias Elwood talks there about the danger of a potential vacuum. Do you think Iraqi forces are strong enough now to manage despite this reduced US force? No, I, I don't really. Um, when the US commander said we have confidence in Iraqi forces, I think someone quipped on social media uh, that excuse is almost old enough to vote. And of course, many of us will remember from, you know, back in 2011, um, when the Obama administration was drawing its troops out of Iraq, this idea that, yes, of course, the Iraqis are fine. They weren't. They didn't have the cohesion. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the morale. And the politics was in very bad shape. I think now it's very clear to me that the reason for the US withdrawal is, above all, the schedule imposed, the artificial schedule imposed by the looming US presidential election, rather than any underlying uh, proficiency among amongst the Iraqi armed forces. Mm, Christopher Lee, to what extent is this also part of a wider strategy by President Trump, who said, we are getting out of the endless wars? The idea of um, American troops being withdrawn from, uh, from Iraq is part of a greater policy uh, of, of where else you are. Um, I think we've got a second point here that we've got to remember is that President Trump has got the election. Um, but at the moment, defence is not a big deal in, in election counting, vote counting. Uh, finally, China has accused Indian troops of illegally crossing a disputed Himalayan border and firing provocative warning shots at patrolling soldiers. India has rejected the allegations and accused Chinese troops of firing in the air during the face-off. At Shashank, relations between the countries have steadily deteriorated in recent months, haven't they? They have. There's been a major standoff over Indian accusations of China nibbling at Indian territory across what they call the line of actual control, sort of undefined border. The reason it's got really serious is that in June, over 20 Indian soldiers were killed in hand-to-hand -hand fighting um, on a ravine. Uh, and even worse, within the past week, what's happened is we have seen the use of firearms 
uh, in warning shots, probably by both sides. The reason that's so serious is that by long-standing agreement for decades, neither side has used guns on the border to keep tensions low. The fact that those restraints are breaking down, that troops are bludgeoning one another to death, firing shots in the air, accumulating tanks and other forces in these mountainous areas, it's all a cause for profound concern and I think we're, we're likely to see further escalation in the months ahead. And Christopher, how critical is this border? The fact that there's been a confrontation there, not just in months but in years, I think tells us everything. The Chinese have got no reason to, to back off and the Indians have got no reason to back off. I mean, we look where you... Where you where you see this whole whole area sort of starts to run into Kashmir, places like that, uh, where there's enough problems for the Indian uh, government anyway. Uh, this is going to go on for a long, long time. The only hope is it's not going to build into something much more powerful. And the fact that where it is might actually prevent that. Christopher Lee, stay with us. Shashank Joshi from The Economist, thank you very much for your time. This is Zitrap. It's 80 years since the start of the Blitz, the bombing campaign against London and other cities and towns. Homes were destroyed by incendiaries. Business blocks were aflame. And still the people of London took it. Night after night, they burrowed underground. And morning after morning, they dug themselves out of the wreckage. Newsreel from the US National Archives. Well, now, three drawings from the artist Henry Moore, which have rarely been displayed publicly, are amongst the artworks to feature in a digital exhibition by Imperial War Museums. Chloe Bowerbank is the assistant curator at the IWM. So the drawings that are in this exhibition depict um, people sheltering in underground stations during the Blitz, um, particularly in the latter part of 1940, in the autumn of that time. Henry Moore was visiting London one evening and an air raid siren meant that he had to stay in Belsize Park Station for a little bit longer than he would normally have wanted to. And whilst he was there, he witnessed um, the mass sort of exodus, as it was, of people coming down to the underground station with bedding with their families, with friends, and simply bedding down for the night. And he looked at this sort of mass of humanity and saw people organising themselves and um, getting comfortable and was incredibly moved by what he had seen. You know, he was so astounded by the nature of uh, the way that these people moved around and how they looked that he immediately knew that he needed to draw these people and he needed to record it for posterity, not only because he was artistically drawn to it, but also because he wanted to give a sense of individual humanity back to these people. So the images that he drew are sort of almost dreamlike shapes flow um, from one to the other, but you still see um, the distinction of the odd face here and there, the shape of a body, someone lying down, and that real innocent action that is so universal to all human beings, which is simply to try and sleep and sleeping through what was you know, a very horrible situation above. Can you describe what it was like for people living through that? It was very difficult for people living through um, the Blitz, particularly that early period between September 1940 and May 1941. In London particular, the air raids were very heavy, 56 nights 
consecutively London was hit um, at the start it was during the day and into the night and then later it was every night that general tension would have been unbearable for people to be able to live under and there was a real worry within the government that people would break under the strain and what makes Henry Moore's drawings and other depictions of these underground shelters so interesting to consider is that initially these underground stations were not sanctioned as official shelters. The government didn't want people to use these places because they were worried that once people went underground and felt safe, they wouldn't want to emerge. What happened in reality was that people would go down there every night, especially as it became apparent that this would be continuing for a while. And it for some people, it just became a part of everyday life. It's very amazing how people were able to just simply adjust they would you know gather their families finish their meals and make their way down to the underground stations get as much rest as they possibly could in you know quite difficult conditions and then the next morning they would emerge to see what the damage was to count their losses and that would continue for weeks and months. And how great was the threat from the air outside London? London was initially the main target during September, but later on um, into autumn, especially in November, um, other industrial cities were targeted by the Luftwaffe. Manchester was particularly um, hard hit because it was the site of the Vickers Armstrong munitions works, as were um, Liverpool, Coventry, um, Exeter later, and other port cities. So most major metropolitan areas in Britain would fear some sort of air bombardment from above. That was Chloe Bowerbank from the Imperial War Museum. More than a million British soldiers have lived and served in Germany over the past 75 years. A new exhibition at the National Army Museum opens on Saturday looking at this unique deployment and following their evolution from conquerors and occupiers to allies and friends. Rosie Layden went along to have a look. Only a fortnight before, Churchill had said that one good heave would see it over. This was the heave. From Foe to Friend, that's the title of this new exhibition, which documents the experience of all the soldiers who served in Germany from 1945 until the present day. Dr Peter Johnston is the curator. That first initial period of, of, of the British experience in Germany was about arriving as conquerors and occupiers. You know, they'd fought their way in by tooth and by claw. But then after that immediately became the next phase in what the British experience would be, which was one of occupation, of government, of having to rebuild everything they tried so hard to destroy for six years. They had nothing. And, and it was, it was oh, so bad to see them. And they, they were so thin. And that was really challenging for the British. You know, they went from being a a lean, fit, war-fighting machine to one of occupation, one of provision. But in fact, early on in that deployment, the British perception of who the enemy was changed. And pretty soon it became obvious that the next enemy that was going to have to be fought was going to be the Soviet Union. You know, it wasn't about preparing for a war. It was about preparing for the war. And this is part of the wider sort of British Soviet-centric defensive policy of the time. I can zoom in on. Can you get the numbers? Seven two nine. There was also an important surveillance role. All of these agreements that were put in place when they were friends uh, about liaison missions and working together and cooperation, they sort of just maintained because no one wants to be seen to be the aggressor in this. 
And that allowed the British some pretty unique opportunities. So in the British Commander-in-Chief's mission to the Soviet Union, uh, better known as Bricksmiths, suddenly they are behind the Iron Curtain. They are deep inside Soviet territory and they have an opportunity to engage in some pretty high-level intelligence gathering missions, which is what they go on and do, uh, and, and quite uniquely. I was a little boy. I asked them uh, in front of the barracks, uh, have you chewing gum? First English sentence, or have you chocolate? How did that relationship with their hosts, with Germany, develop over time? I think that relationship between the British Army and the Germans throughout this period is really unique. When the British arrive, the, the Germans are subjects. You know, they are there to be governed. They have no say in anything that goes on. And yet now the British have left Germany. They've, they've done as, as trusted friends, as good neighbours. And it's been remarkable, really. There's also just the pure economic reasons. You know, the, the British contribution to Germany's economic recovery, economic miracle, cannot be overstated. You know, the, the British rebuilt Volkswagen. And the British had an amazing economic impact on, on their zone. Places like Hereford, for example, uh, Hereford of Brauerei, the, the, the brewers of the beer, they had a 50% drop in sales when the British left Hereford. I'm standing in Bernaustrasse, where the wall is coming down. Apart from being a wonderful historical record, what does that period of the British Army presence in Germany and, of course, your exhibition have to tell us about things today? I think when we look back at what the Army's time in Germany tells us it's about the value of continuous, rigorous training in things like deterrence. That's what wins battles of deterrence, is being shown that you're committed and you're ready to go if necessary and you're extremely professional. And, you know, speaking to so many soldiers as I did and, and throughout the last few years as the drawdown was taking place, there was a real sadness of what they were leaving behind, both professionally and the access to these amazing training areas, but also in terms of their family lives as well. And Photo Friend opens at the National Army Museum in London on Saturday. That report by Rosie Layden, Christopher Lee, I mean, the very title of that exhibition just goes to show how relationships can change. And also, if you think what we were talking about earlier, about the Americans pulling out troops from Iraq, you get into a war, you get into somebody's country, and then what do you do? You try and settle things down. You try and guarantee that there won't be another battle. Thanks, Christopher. That's it from me, Kate Chabon. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.